Thanks, Brandon. Hey, good morning. You all right? Man, our church is filling up. You all ready to come back? This is good. Look at the balcony. Isn't that great? Good to see you all. You're about as close as you can get to me. I can almost touch you guys over here. It's just a minute. I'm going to touch you. Uh, hey, if you're new, as Brandon said, welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We're going to look at a, a biblical doctrine today. We're going to take a little bit of a break, uh, just one Sunday break, I promise, from the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to look at something called the rapture. Uh, and you may roll your eyes at that word. You may go, oh boy, what are we going to talk about today? Um, the rapture is an idea that, that uh, 1 Corinthians 15 calls a mystery, uh, it's a, a mystery in your Bible is not something that is like a riddle. It's not a, uh, a complexity, like a knot that you're meant to untie. It's something that uh, is not revealed until a certain point biblically. Uh, and the greatest example of that is the, uh, in the New Testament when uh, writers talk about the mystery. Uh, it's primarily connected to the church, uh, connected to God taking Jew and Gentile and bringing them into one body, uh, like Ephesians said, and making, like Christ, made peace by his blood. So we're going to look at uh, the doctrine of the rapture. How many people this week had a thought, you know, because the rapture is coming, I'm going to make some different choices in my life? See, one. That was it. There's one of you this week. Uh, it's a doctrine that feels a little bit obscure. It feels a little bit uh, hard for us to wrap our minds around. But what we're going to see today, in, uh, it, it's implied in a lot of different places in the Scripture, but I'm going to take three particular ones today. Uh, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to look at this doctrine and talk about why it's so important for the church. I, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency, uh, I've noticed this about myself personally, to live my life as if uh, I'm in a constant eternal present, that the present things for me are pressing things. Do you feel that? That you come in this morning and you feel like, I can't get to the thing on Wednesday because I've got to deal with the thing Monday. And that uh, the urgency of the moment in our lives has a tendency to kind of grab our attention and grab our focus. We, we have these things that, that happen in our lives where our attention gets drawed, uh, drawn from the past into this kind of eternal present that's always here. It's always demanding my attention and my focus. And uh, when that happens, you, you know this if you've, you know, been around a certain amount of time that, you know, uh, we've had six kids in about eight years, and it felt like our present has been so uh, busy that we look up and it's been a decade. You, ever, you feel like that? You ever feel like, boy, it was just 2000, or it was just 1990, or if you're older than that, it was just whenever it was. Whenever that decade is for you, go, boy, it, just a minute ago, it was here. And I look up, and uh, all of my focus on the present has made me forgetful of two things, the past and the future. And the Christian, when they come to the scriptures, is meant to live as an individual between two different realities between the objective reality of what Jesus has done for us on the cross back here and the truth and the promises of Jesus Christ about what he will do in the future, okay? So this doctrine of the rapture, this biblical truth and biblical idea, we're gonna do a little bit of systematic theology and look at it in, in about three different places and I'll mention it uh, along the way as we go. But Christians are meant to be these people who are between two worlds, uh, I believe it was Francis Schaeffer who wrote a, a famous book that said between two worlds. We're between the already and the not yet. That there are certain realities that we have faith in and what Jesus has done for us and there are certain things that have yet to come to pass. Well, we're gonna look at that and watch how the New Testament writers, Jesus and Paul, both talk about this idea uh, of the rapture and why it's so important. And what I want you to see in each of these three big texts, John 14, if you didn't get them down, John 14, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and 1 Corinthians 15, uh, I want you to note the context. I want you to see why this particular biblical doctrine is given when it is and why it's given to the people it's given to. Does that make sense? So it's not an arbitrary idea. 
Uh, it's a very personal and particular and pastoral doctrine that the New Testament writers give to encourage people because the scriptures are given not for us, just for us to get smarter, right? The scriptures are given that our lives might be transformed, that you and I might live differently today as the result of the truth of the scriptures that we see. Paul says in Romans that the, the things that were written uh, were for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, that we might have hope. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about your future hope today. That if you have come to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for you on the cross, that you can live your life with a totally reordered emotional radar. That he can give you true comfort and hope as a result of the promises that he's made of the things not only that he has done, but that he will do. All right? So let's look at this together. Let's pray and ask God for his grace as we dive into the word here together. Father in heaven, thanks for the truth that we're about to look at. We pray this morning for those who come in and may feel like they're forgotten. They may feel discouraged. They may feel abandoned in their life. They may just be forgetful of the truths of the scripture. So I pray this morning that you would strengthen us that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope, that you might instruct our hearts, that you would reorient our emotions, that you would cause us to be a people who are eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ, that you might cause us to be a people, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Father, that you would find us faithful in the seasons and times that we are in to speak the truth, to work for your name in the variety of contexts that are represented in this room, and that we would be found faithful. So, Father, instruct us, encourage us, exhort us here this morning from your word that you would teach us some things that maybe uh, we have a lot of questions about. And that you would teach us some things that would reorient our heart and that we would leave this place as a, a hopeful people, confident in what you will do for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen? All right, grab your Bibles. Turn to John 14. <clears throat> if you uh, are going to use a Bible or you need a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you want to follow along with us, it will be on the screen if you want to follow us in a more uh, intimate way by putting the Bible in your hands, you can find the text that we're going to be looking at here first in John on page 847. Uh, John 14 is in the midst of the upper room discourse. In John 13, Jesus is given the morsel to Judas. Judas has had Satan enter in. Jesus has said, go and do the thing that you're about to do. Judas stands up and Judas leaves the room. And what Jesus is left with here in the upper room discourse is a conversation between himself and the faithful, himself and the 11. And just as a little bit of a running start, if you, are you there in 14, John 14? Look up just a minute here in John 13 from where you are. You see what he says there, 1331? When he had gone out, that being Judas, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now watch this. Here's the context of John 14 so you understand what Jesus is about to say to these men. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow after. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Lord, I, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So Judas leaves, and now the disciples are in this place where Jesus is saying, I'm about to go away. 
Now imagine walking with Jesus for the past three years. Jesus brings you to the upper room where he has the last supper. He washes their feet and he says, now, boys, I'm about to go away. Imagine the emotional turmoil that shows up in their minds and their hearts. They've seen this man heal the sick, cleanse lepers, raise the dead, multiply food for the 5,000. He's talked about being the light of the world, the good shepherd. He's turned water into wine. They are certain that Jesus is who he says he is, and now Jesus says he's going away. And it's in that context of, shall we say, discouragement or despair where Jesus is about to give them truth. He's about to have a mini counseling session with these 11 disciples who are struggling with the reality that now Jesus is going to go somewhere where they cannot go. He is about to go away and they're not going to see him. And later on in in John 14, he's gonna talk about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's gonna come and gonna lead them into all truth and he's gonna be the comforter. As Jesus says, I have many things to teach you but you can't bear them now. You're gonna have to uh, wait for the Holy Spirit to come who will comfort you and lead you into all truth. And that's good news, but before we get to the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is about to direct their discouragement to himself. He's going to to make sure that in their discouragement that he gives them something to hold on to, something to build up their hope. You with me? Now with that background, with that feeling in the room of Judas gone and we're all looking at Jesus and Jesus says, I'm about to go away and you can't come, let's see what Jesus says in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Troubled is, uh, it's typically used of anxiety and issues in our heart that you can imagine what the, how the disciples will feel. Jesus actually uses this term of himself earlier in the chapter, uh, right before he allows Judas to leave and say and enter in. It says Jesus was deeply troubled. He's this word. So Jesus knows what he's about to face. He knows what is about to happen. He knows what Judas is going to do. And now he turns and he counsels his friends. And he says, don't be troubled about this reality that I am going away. Look what he says next. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now I mentioned some things that Jesus has done already that would be uh, remarkable things, miraculous things to confirm the truth about who he is for the disciples. And Jesus knows what he's about to go do. The disciples might not understand it, but Jesus understands what he's about to go do. So Jesus is between two realities, the past of what he has done, the departure presently with his disciples, and the future of what he's about to accomplish for us and for the disciples. And Jesus says, all right, boys, circle up, eyes on me. You believe in God, believe also in me. Well, Jesus, we've believed in you back here with all these things that you've done and you've accomplished, but now we're gonna have to trust you as you go forward and you leave us. So the disciples as such are just like us, right? You have some things uh, in your life where you have walked with Jesus, where Jesus has come through for you and you've seen prayers answered. Say yes or say no. Yeah, you've been there, right? We've all had those seasons in life where we trusted God and we didn't know how it was gonna work out and God came through. But do you have situations in your life now where God has not come through? There's some things that you're, that you're still praying for and you're not quite sure how this is going to happen, how God is gonna come through in these situations or these relationships or these conversations. Well, this is right where the disciples are. They've seen Jesus do some things that, that declare to them who he is, but now he's gonna go away and we're gonna have to trust Jesus, not when we see him and we can touch him when we can talk to him. We're gonna have to trust Jesus when we can't see him. Now, is that where we are? You gotta trust some truth about Jesus and his word about some things that you're not sure how they're gonna work out and you gotta trust him when you can't see him. That's that's another church, you gotta pay attention. We got two churches at the same time that we're we're gonna do some work here. Do I need to change? We gonna gonna keep going, we're going. Thank you, Kenny. That's good. Strike it down, Lord. We got things to work on here. What was I talking about? It was good. (laughs) We're between the times. The disciples are between the times. Jesus said, you believe in God. Now, what Jesus is going to do to comfort individuals, listen, when you are facing situations that you don't understand what Jesus is doing, Jesus is telling you and Jesus is telling 
Steve, eyes on me, right? I need to hear that in times where I don't understand what Jesus is doing. I need to hear that Jesus is, is calling me to himself to say, hey, I'm not promising you that you're gonna understand. I'm asking you to trust me. And that's where the disciples are. What's Jesus about? We all know. Look, you know the end of John. You know the end of the story. What's Jesus about to do? He's about to go take their sin on himself. He's about to be crushed by the Father. He's about to experience the consequence of death on a cross. And then he's going to go rise again. All of that the disciples are, are confused about. But that's okay. They don't have to understand it. Jesus understands it. And Jesus says, look at me. You believe in God, now believe in me. Look at me, understand me. Be near to me, understand who I am. Now, what Jesus does is move their eyes to his person, and now they're gonna, what he's gonna do is move their eyes to a promise, okay? Now, you've read, you may have read John 14 before, and you know that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? But what precedes that is what I want us to see here in this passage. Why does Jesus give them encouragement with his person and then with this promise. What does this promise meant to do for discouraged individuals? Look at verse two. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That's called a rhetorical question. Right? Jesus doesn't comfort you with platitudes. He comforts you with truth. Do I need to say that again? Jesus doesn't say, it's gonna be all right. Jesus says, in my, in my Father's house, note the language, personal, relationship, Heavenly Father language. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it wasn't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? No. If this was false, if this was something that you weren't gonna put your faith in, I wouldn't tell it to you. Jesus isn't arbitrary when he speaks. He gives you truth to hang on to so that when he looks you in the eye and says, you don't understand, put your eyes on me, trust me, then he gives you truth to build your faith. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse three, and if I go to a pla prepare a place for you, since I am going right now to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus' encouragement to these disciples where he says, I'm about to go and I'm gonna die on the cross, I'm gonna rise from the dead, I'm gonna ascend into heaven. Remember Acts chapter one, all the disciples are talking to Jesus, Jesus ascends into heaven and they're all doing this. And then they, they do it so long that two, two angels show up and go, men of Galilee, why are you staring into the heavens? This Jesus who you saw go up into the heavens will return the same way. What? Right? They need coaching to remember that Jesus, what Jesus said he would do, he did. And what Jesus said he will do, he will do. See, when we face seasons and times of discouragement, one of the temptations uh, I think we face is that because we don't see Jesus here, we don't see him in front of us and that he's in heaven and ascended to the right hand of the Father is that Jesus, because he's not here and he's departed, is somehow forgetful. That you face situations of difficulty and misunderstanding and not knowing how to work out your faith all the time. And so do I. And what Jesus gives us here in this passage is a reminder. Did you see the personal language? He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for who? You. That one of the things that I need to know when I don't understand what Jesus is doing, I need to know that he knows me by name. Right? I need to know that I'm not forgotten. And isn't that what suffering does for us? It causes us to question our relationship with God. It causes us to go, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I'm trying to have faith and trust in you. And when Jesus says, I'm going away, and you can't follow now, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. 
it reminds me of what Jesus talks about when he says, all the Father will give to me will come to me, and I will lose not one. That I know you by name when you go through times in your relationship with God where you don't understand, where you're discouraged, where it's difficult for you to see what's on the other side. Jesus gives them the confidence of his return to get them so that they would know they're not forgotten. Is that good? Isn't that good news? I mean, you've quoted John 14 before, but don't miss the encouragement that God gives, that Jesus gives to these discouraged disciples who don't understand what's happening. He says, I'm about to do some things for you that you can't do for yourself. I'm about to take on me the sin of the world. I'm gonna be uh, uh, crucified. I'm gonna experience the wrath of God for you, and I'm gonna experience it. I'm gonna experience the wrath of God for you so that you can be welcomed into my Father's house so that you can be a son or a daughter safe with God in heaven. So you see why that's an encouragement to discouraged, uh, despairing, perplexed people? Jesus says, I haven't forgotten. I know right where you are. I know what I'm about to do, and I know that I'm gonna come back and get you. Be encouraged. Okay, so there's your first idea. It, it's, uh, it's developed in Paul's writings a little bit further. So you got that in John 14. You see Jesus' promise that he's gonna come back and get his faithful. Now, let's look at it uh, in another place. Turn to your right uh, to 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, this is page, if you want, in, want to be in the black Bibles, this is page 927. First and second Thessalonians are, um, are very pastoral letters. They're, they're given uh, to a discouraged congregation. They're given to a congregation who can't make sense of the persecution and difficulty that they're experiencing. Uh, they're facing kind of a, a s- several different complex worries. They're worried that the people that they are burying will have missed the day of the Lord. And they live in such a time and in such a place where the gospel gets a hold of their life and uh, God does something in this church that it's known throughout the entire area that they turn from idols to the living God. Did you find 1 Thessalonians? You're mostly there? All right, good. Uh, Look at chapter one real quick before we get to four. I'll give you sort of a bird's eye view of what this church is struggling with. 1 Thessalonians 1. Verse two, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us And of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report to us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this church got changed. When Paul brought the gospel to them, it took a hold of their life. It took a hold of the way they thought. It took a hold of uh, how they lived by faith, and they were repentant, and everybody started to see what was going on in this church. But this church has a problem, because the church started to experience persecution for their faith. Look at chapter three, just one page next. Three one, therefore when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Is affliction a part of the Christian life? Do you come to Jesus and have all your problems go away? Say no. Okay, good. No, Paul says that there's affliction, there's coming. But this church, uh, they're deceived. They're believing something wrongly about God and who he is. 
Turn one page to your right. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You turn too quick, you'll miss these books. They're little. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Here's the problem for this church. This church believes that they're going through afflictions, persecution, and difficulty, and they're believing that they have missed the boat. They believe that their persecutions, their affliction, and their suffering are proof that God is pouring out his wrath on the world. Now, is that dangerous for a church to believe? That every time I go through affliction or persecution or difficulty or suffering or hardship, that it is automatically God's wrath at me. That every time you face something difficult, God's mad at you. Oh, I got a flat. God must hate me. Oh, we're in conflict. God must hate me. I didn't get the job. God must hate me. Now, we said this in the book of uh, Revelation so far, and we looked at these churches. And I ranted about this, but that uh, in Jesus, the wrath issue is handled. Amen? That all of God's wrath has been exhausted on the person of Christ. So that now, when a Christian goes through seasons of difficulty and suffering, Peter says, don't think it a strange thing when you go through trials. Don't think about it as if something strange or weird was happening to you. Because for the Christian, in Jesus and with Jesus, suffering is always transformed and used for our good. That he uses trials and tribulations to develop perseverance and character and hope And he develops us into the men and women that God wants for us to be. But this church is facing a deception. They think that the people that they are burying who have put their hope in Christ are really experiencing the wrath of God at sin. And that they've missed uh, the rapture. They've missed the gathering of his people. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4 now. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, uh, what did I say? 14? 14's good. I'm sorry, let's do 13. Just kidding. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. I want you to be wise, church. I want you to know some things that shape your theology and understanding about who God is and what he has done about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Let me ask you, is your theology formed by those words? Do you start in your thinking about God and spiritual things with that phrase, verse 14? Since I believe that Jesus died and rose again, dot, 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 Does it change the way you think, the way you pray, the way you suffer, the way you pursue things of this life? Does the resurrection cast a hue over the way that you process things? Well, Paul seems to think it should. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even though, even so, Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You know, uh, this past year, I guess it was December. When did we bury Bill Beverly, Rick? December? December. Rick came, Rick, Rick DeMeyer was in our church. Uh, He came up and he did the, um, he did the graveside with myself and Steve Lindemeyer. And he looked back to Bill Beverly. Bill Beverly was 100, about 100. He was 100. Uh, was the longest living member that we had in Citadel Square. And we laid him to rest, and Rick stood there at the graveside, and he said, this isn't Bill. Bill's shell is here, but Bill is now with the Lord. He's now in the presence of Jesus Christ. His faith has become sight. And Paul is dealing with a church who is so eager for the things of the Lord and living in such anticipation of his return, they think the people that they buried have missed the, the Lord's return. 
Well, we just buried Bill. Gee, he's going to miss Jesus coming back and getting them. What are we going to do? And even worse, the day of the Lord is now. Biblically, in your, uh, when you deal in the New Testament, you have two distinct events. You have the return of Jesus Christ for his saints, and you have the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the pouring out of wrath from Jesus upon the sinners or the earth dwellers that we'll see in the book of Revelation. Those who refuse to receive the truth and instead love unrighteousness. The rapture is Jesus' return in the air to gather his saints to himself. To come and get them before the wrath of God comes. Why? Because the wrath of God has already fallen on our great high priest. The wrath of God has been exhausted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we are not, as Paul will say in 2 Thessalonians, we are not destined for wrath. So, look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. If they're safe with Jesus Christ, we won't go and God forgets the dead Christians. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You want a, you want a pastor joke? You know why they rise first? Because they got six more feet to go. Isn't that funny? Isn't that great? I don't think that applies here necessarily. It's a great joke. You can tell your, tell your friends. Verse 17, and then... We who are alive, who are left, will be, here's your rapture word, it's harpazo in the Greek, it means to snatch. They will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the air, meet the Lord in the air, and so, watch this, we will always be what? With the Lord. He's not going to forget one. I don't care if they're living, they're suffering, they're getting persecuted, they're dying for their faith, they are all together safe in Jesus Christ that he will return and get him. He will not lose one. Therefore, watch this context now. Watch the context of this doctrine. Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why would Paul say that? Because if you are in the midst of going through suffering, persecution, affliction, hardship as a result of your faith, you need to know that you aren't forgotten, right? You need to know, Christian, that persecution, affliction, and hardship is not wrath. Please hear me on that. Because Christians get this all sorts of twisted where they think that life is hard and Jesus doesn't like them. Jesus died for you. Jesus experienced the wrath of God for you. Jesus promises to come and get you. Jesus, Isaiah says, has inscribed you on the palms of his hands. He knows right where you are. He knows exactly what you're going through. And you need to get this out of your brain, that difficulty is not wrath. You hear me? Don't miss that. You have not been destined for wrath. Wrath has fallen in Jesus. Jesus loves you. He saved you. He died for you. He's raised for you, and he's coming back to get you. All right, let's put it all together. There's one more place I want to show you this from. Turn to, back to your left. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, page 904 in those black Bibles, if you're following along there. 1 Corinthians 15, right at the end of this chapter, this whole chapter begins with Paul talking about things of first importance. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brother, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. It's similar to what Paul has just said in 1 Thessalonians 4, since we believe Jesus died and rose again. So Paul builds what he's going to say in 1 Corinthians 50. Now go to the end of the chapter. Or what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Let me preach just a minute. You know the kingdom isn't going to come when you lose that last 10 pounds and get the promotion, right? Right? Like, you know that, like, Thursday, when you get to go on that vacation, that the kingdom of God isn't going to come. Why? Why do we live as if we can make the kingdom of God here that we believe it's come and we're going to bring in the kingdom? Paul seems to think here that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You got to the point in life where you recognize that your body is not getting better every day in every way? After a couple of surgeries like I've had, you go, man, I'm not getting stronger and faster. And Paul says the perishable uh, doesn't inherit the imperishable. Look at 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. There's that word. In the New Testament, like I said, you've got the, the primary use of the word mysteries in the context of Jew and Gentile being one body together in Jesus Christ. But you've got different mysteries in the New Testament. You've got the mystery of godliness. You've got the mystery of lawlessness. Uh, you've got the mystery of um, the kingdom of God. You've got the mystery of Christ's will in Ephesians chapter 1. But this here is another mystery. It's something that up to this point is not revealed. It's hinted at in your Old Testament, the idea of the rapture that we got to go in and we got to get Lot out of Sodom before wrath of God can fall on Sodom and Gomorrah, that you got to go in and get Rahab out before the walls of Jericho fall. we got to get Noah and protect him before the wrath of God takes away the sinfulness of humanity. But here Paul says it's a mystery. Look at what he says. We shall not all sleep. 1 Thessalonians 4 said that we will be caught up together with them in the air that the alive in Christ and the dead in Christ will be united together with Christ. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. You know where we get that word moment? It's the word in the Greek, A-T-O-M-O-S, atomos. It's where we get atom. It's, that, it's the smallest unit of divisible time in a moment. Boom. We're not metamorphosized into new imperishable bodies, just like that. It'll happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Together, we. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. This is from the book of Hosea. I think it's just a beautiful uh, you can imagine Paul singing this out with all his lungs. You see how the text changes? It changes from, from uh, almost to a song, to prophetic literature. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, from Genesis 3 onward, we talk about de death in the book of Romans. The wages of sin is death, right? That all of us are going to either be raptured or be resurrected. And death, from Genesis chapter 3, is God's divine mercy to us because he will not let us live eternally in corruptible bodies. He won't do it. So that he puts an end to the life of men because he will not allow us to continue in this sinful brokenness of our flesh and our humanity is that he brings it to an end until this point right here. When the Christ comes for his people, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. O de death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us what? Three times in three verses. Victory, victory, victory. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He starts with the gospel. He ends with the book of Revelation, where there is no more death. It has no more sway. It will be swallowed up forever, is what Isaiah says. Now, what's the application, Paul? And I love that this is the application. This last verse of 1 Corinthians is so great to me because he doesn't just leave us pondering the rapture, pondering the resurrection. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my brothers, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I love that. Do you see what he just did? So tie these three together. John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, and now 1 Corinthians 15. All of those texts are future-looking texts. And they're future-looking texts so that you would reorder how you live today. Here's, here's a pastoral concern I have. I'm as gospel-centered as anybody. I love the fact of the gospel and the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But one of the things that I think happens for us when we forget uh, future-looking truths that Jesus has done stuff for us in the past, 2,000 years ago, that affects our life today, right? That there's an objective truth that we look back to that reorders how we think, how we feel, how we act, how we speak today. But one of the pastoral concerns I have is that we don't spend enough time looking to what Jesus will do. That the future promises of Jesus kind of are foggy for us. That we're not really sure where it's all headed or what Jesus is going to do or what happens when he returns. And as such, we don't live our lives the way Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 15. That when suffering and hardship and difficulty come into our life, we go, I guess Jesus died way back there and he rose from the dead, but I don't know what that means for Tuesday. I don't really know what I ought to be hoping in and hoping for and looking forward to. I'm not sure how Jesus is going to bring all this together. I don't know what he's going to do tomorrow, let alone eternity into the future. And what happens is, I think, what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 58 that we're not as steadfast as we should be. That we're too movable and shifted around because we don't understand the the future promises of Jesus connected to the past promises of Jesus, so we can't live in the present for Jesus. That we get confused and uncertain and we allow suffering and difficulty and persecution. You see why I shared those texts in the beginning? That discouragement and deception of what's happening in the culture and around them and with persecution causes them to misunderstand Jesus. They misunderstand God's purposes. They can't see and get out of their circumstances to be bound in their theology, to be strengthened, to be steadfast, and to be immovable now, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I've been working this week on this illustration. So, man, I really hope it works for you. I want you to imagine that you're in an airport. And you've, you know, you go through security and you got to take your belt off. Why I have to take my belt off, I have no idea. I guess that's where you hide the explosives if you have belts. I don't know. And you get through and you got to put your, your, your shoes back on, your belt back on and get your carry-on. You start moving through the airport. And then if you've traveled for any amount of time, you know the reality that happens in an airport is that you get up to the gate and somehow, some way, the plane is delayed. And it might be so delayed because of weather that now you have to spend the night in the airport or they're going to give you a hotel room for the night, or they're going to try to bump you to the next flight, or they're going to give you that voucher so that you can have a flight at the other time in another place. And there you are in the airport. And the food's not very good. you got to eat at the Chili's again. And you don't really like Chili's, but it's food. And you try the coffee, and the coffee's not good. 
and you wish it was good, but it's not. And sooner or later, you're in this airport, and you know your plane's coming. You know that uh, you're you're gonna get home. But the thing that helps you wait in the airport is your perspective, isn't it? It's the fact that you're gonna go home, and it would be weird of you in the airport to start ordering appliances and start tearing out a bathroom and start putting in tile. Now, this, don't, don't take this as, I bought a stove this year, okay? So this isn't like an anti-stove rant or like, you know, sell your house rant. That's not the point of this. The point is, if you're in the airport, your perspective is always one of someone who's looking forward to leaving, right? And when the plane's late, you blame God. And you go, it must be God's hatred for me because the plane is, and this egg salad sandwich is terrible. And why did I get egg salad sandwich in an airport? Oh, I can't understand what's going on and what God is doing in this moment. And the danger for you and I is forgetting that we're leaving. It's forgetting that he's coming. So that we don't know how to obey here because we forget that he's coming back and he knows me by name and he doesn't waste any of my suffering. And that persecution and hardship and difficulty aren't, you know, God's punishment of me, but they're through the divine hands of a loving father to make me into the man or woman that God has designed for me to be. I don't want you to sit in the airport and forget that you're leaving. You hear me? I don't want you to get comfortable. This world is not your home. Your hope is not here. And you need to hear that. I need to hear that. My home is not here. This perishable must put on imperishable. There must come a time when this body goes into the ground and Jesus raises it perfect. And see, that allows you to live here better. It allows you to not be so swayed by seasons and difficulties and not live with this sense of, like I started with, this eternal present where everything is so urgent and serious and right now and it's God's, I'm not sure I guess what God is doing, I don't understand. See, the rapture and the promises of, you see how rapture and resurrection are put together as a proof that Jesus will one day eradicate death. It will be gone, and you will spend eternity, billions of years, redeemed and restored and free from all sin. And don't live your life like you're in an airport, like he's not coming back. Let me sum this up. I'm going to ask the band to come. There's one text I think that came to mind as I I thought about the kind of people that we ought to be as we think about the rapture and the resurrection. And it's it's from one of Paul's pastoral epistles. Uh, Paul writes this to Titus, and he weaves these ideas all together in like three verses that would be theological libraries but he takes the past, the present, and the future, and he aligns them. If you don't understand what Jesus has done in the past, you can't live well in the present, amen? If you don't understand what Jesus is gonna do in the future, you can't live well in the present either. This is Titus chapter two, verse 11, and we'll close here. He says this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That your life, because of Jesus Christ being risen from the dead, ought to look different. That there ought to be a character, a tone about your life that looks like this, that the grace of God trains you to be different. It encourages you to be different. It empowers you to be different. That the kind of life you live in this present age is a life where you have faith in the grace of Jesus Christ for you. That causes you to live this kind of life. Self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Now look at what he does. This is the kind of life we ought to live with our perspective. 
Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The New Testament Christian is always eagerly anticipating Jesus' return. Hebrews 9 says that he will return again, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you? I cannot wait to see him eye to eye. I can't wait for the tension and the stress of a sinful human life to fade and the perishable to go into the ground and to be raised imperishable. That's what he will do. This is who we ought to be. This is what he will do. Now watch him go backwards. Verse 14, who gave himself, past tense, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He knows you by name. You are his. People for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I love that Paul tells this to Titus. Titus, what are you gonna do with this? Titus 2, verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Church, pay attention. Let's live like we're leaving. Let's live like he died, was buried, and he rose again, and he's coming back for us. Father in heaven, we need these truths of the scriptures to reorient our hearts and our minds, to help us know not only what you have done in the past, what you will do in the future, but how we ought to live now. I pray that the hope of the rapture and the resurrection might reorient our lives even today, that you would make us hopeful, confident people who are eagerly awaiting the return of our King. Father, may that eagerness shape the way we speak to one another, the way we renounce sinful desires, the way we live upright and self-controlled lives in this present age. Father, make us a people of great faith in the truth of what you have done. Thank you so much for the comfort of Jesus Christ. And that for those in this room today who are discouraged and despairing and uncertain of who you are and what you're doing in their life, I pray that they would know the truth and the shepherding voice of Jesus Christ through your spirit and your word today. That they would hear from you, that you know them by name. That we are not destined for wrath, but that you love us. You are kind to us. You know our names. And one day you're coming for us to bring us home. May that order our minds and hearts the obedience that we seek to live out here this week, would it reorient our emotions and our anxieties that we would hear from Jesus Christ, don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus who will one day proclaim that death has no victory, death has no sting, and in him is our total victory, we pray. Amen.